it may be best for you to just open up your Bible. The book of Acts will be all over this morning, um, and most of the verses will be on the screen. So follow along, follow along on the screen. You can work that one out. So if you have been with us in recent weeks, you know that we're in the midst of a Sunday morning sermon series and a Sunday evening base group time wherein we are exploring what it means to be a gospel community that is sent together on mission. And during this time, we've taken a quick break from what is our normal and primary mode of preaching expositionally through books of the Bible. So uh, a few weeks, we'll be back in the book of Romans, picking up in chapter 12 with really more of the same, love one another, show hospitality, and, and that. But we'll be back in Romans in just a couple weeks. Uh, by way of review this morning, in these four weeks, in our, in, for four weeks in our base group, we, we went back to the basics of the gospel, what the gospel is, what the gospel does in us, and how the gospel reforms us to view the world. And then, as the sermon series and the study on Sunday nights converged, we began looking at how community flows out of the gospel. And last week, how Christian community is integral to our continued growth in the gospel. And I offer this review this morning from the start because I think getting the flow of this is absolutely critical. It is critical that we get the gospel firmly as our foundation because community and mission are outworkings of a right relationship with Jesus. If we undertake striving for community and mission without keeping the grace of God central and thereby walking in the Spirit, then I fear we will grow our to-do lists in a manner that is unbearably burdensome. But if we can keep the gospel on our hearts and on our lips and commune deeply with God, then we are liberated to live this out in community and on mission. And I must say, uh, before we go further, I, and this emphasis on base groups, I have been wildly encouraged by the amazing responses from our base groups. As you begin wrestling with what it would look like to intentionally spend more time together that we could spur one another on in the gospel. And so... Today we move along in the series and, and kind of the other shoe drops and we go to, to mission. But as we have journeyed through these weeks of intentional events aimed at giving you a taste of what community could look like week to week, I hope that you've found it encouraging. Like when you've gotten together, I hope that you have found those times sweet. I hope that even while you have made, may have had to scratch and claw to make space for some of these things, I hope that what happened in those times was that you began to get more and more of a taste of what could be possible if we made time together more and more a priority. So today we move on to mission, but as we do, I would encourage you to continue to wrestle with the community piece and continue to figure out how you might love one another more and more. As the gospel saves us into community, 
community helps our hearts stay full of the gospel, and then hearts full of the gospel overflow in mission. And then in this, God gets the worship that he deserves. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, God, we thank you for the way that you've drawn every person in here who is a Christian to yourself. God, we thank you that when you call us to yourself, you save us to a family. You don't save us to just walk this out on our own, but you surround us with a church family. God, I pray for anyone in here that doesn't know you, that as we speak this morning about our calling to to proclaim the gospel, um, God, that they might come to know you even this morning. Father, I'm wholly inadequate to communicate this message this morning. I'm desperate for you to speak through me. Father, I pray that you would do that. You would guard me from error. Give me words to say. And Father, as we go from here, I pray that we would go wrestling with encouraged Go encouraged, but go wrestling with our great responsibility, our great privilege to, sh- to, to go with the gospel. God, I pray that we would go out from here figuring out how we might do that more. God, we desire obedience. God, I pray that you would work through our base groups as they have discussions on the topic. God, I pray that in those discussions... Um, our defenses and our minimizing and our rationalizing and, um, and our weary not knowing how to do it, I pray, God, that those things would fall away, that we might see more and more people bow their knee to you and worship you. I pray that you would do that work in us this morning. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 28 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Mark 13 And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Luke. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high.
John. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, I may have told this story before, but it happened to me again this week. Um, I, I, work in, I work in sales, and I have this big sale that I'm trying to close, right? And uh, I needed on Monday to make some revisions to the contract, get it over to one of our other guys by 12 o'clock on Monday so that he could look over it, sign off on it, and then we can get it in the customer's hands by the end of the day. So, knowing that I have an 11 a.m. meeting on Monday, I'm working on this thing Monday morning, and I wrap, the thi- I wrap all the revisions, I do my part, I wrap it up around 10.45, type up the email, attach the document, hit send, close my laptop, and I'm out the door to make my 11 o'clock appointment. So, then it gets to be late in the afternoon, and I start thinking, how come the other guy hasn't signed off on this yet? Like, this is a big deal. Uh, what's going on here? And I'm about to call the guy and say, hey, I sent you an email at 1045 this morning. Are we good to go on this? And in order like, to get the time right when I'm talking to him, I pull up my, my, my sent mailbox, and it's not there. So then like a mild panic ensues, and I'm trying to figure out what happened. When, when I, then I look over, and I see this lonely little number one sitting there right next to my outbox. Most of you know exactly what happened, right? Uh, I thought I sent it. I did hit send. What actually happened was I hit send, and then I closed my laptop too soon, and it got stuck right there in the outbox. And the outbox is this sort of email no-man's land of messages that you tried to send, but they haven't actually gone out. So you think they're gone, they're gone from you, but the other person hasn't received them, and so therefore they haven't gone out. And I tell that story to ask this question. Are we living out our identities as the sent people of God, or are we stuck in some kind of limbo knowing who we are and what God intends for our lives, and yet not actually walking out in it. We are, according to the scriptures, by our very identities, sent. As disciples of Jesus, we are sent. Church family, my aim this morning is that we might be stirred up from the scriptures to see again that the life-giving command to make disciples is a primary command on the Christian's life. And as such, it must hold its rightful place of prominence in the life of the believer. That is, the issue of mission, of gospel-advancing activity, of being witnesses, must remain for us an issue of primary importance. In seeking that aim this morning, I want to lead off by stating some of the assumptions that I'm starting from this morning, and I think that these will be disarming. 
I think these will be disarming for you. If you've been with us for any time at all, then there's four things that I believe are true about you, which I am presuming as givens for everything else that I will say this morning. Number one, I believe that you know and believe that you have been commanded to share the gospel. I don't think we have in our church like anti-Great Commission people. I don't think that we have... uh, People that are like, no, 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 that's not me, I'm not doing that. I don't think that that's the case. It would be awkward to join a church whose mission statement is glorifying God by making disciples of all nations if you don't actually believe in making disciples. I don't think that that's what we have. Fundamentally, I think everyone who calls New Branch home believes every Christian is called to advance the gospel. Number two, I believe that you actually love sharing the gospel. From everyone that I know in here today, I believe that when you get the opportunity to share the message of Jesus Christ crucified on a cross for our sins, that you get giddy with joy. Some of you have heard last weekend, God in his providence scheduled our men's retreat to share at campus with a large gathering similar to Alcoholics Anonymous. Hundreds of broken men coming together to fight their addiction. And so throughout the two days we were there, men from that group kept intersecting with men from our group. And there were a handful of times where men from New Branch got the opportunity, got the privilege to share the gospel message. And here's the thing, like, For me, and I think I speak for you in saying the same, just being near to that kind of opportunity where the gospel gets to go forth is electrifying. It gives me great joy, and I believe the same is true for you when you do get the opportunity to share the gospel. Number three, while you believe you're commanded to do it, while you enjoy doing it, I believe most of us aren't sharing the gospel a whole lot. I think the position most of us, myself included, find ourselves in this morning is that while we know we've been sent to share the gospel and we actually delight in sharing the gospel, most of us don't actually get the opportunity to share the gospel that much. This is an assumption, okay? I'm making that this morning. That's an assumption that I'm stating from the get-go. So if you're here today and you're like, not me, man, I'm killing it, then please come see me afterwards. Teach me your ways. I want to know how to do that. Number four, because you know you're commanded, because you love doing it, because you're probably not doing it a whole lot. Number four, I lead with the assumption that you want to share the gospel more. What I believe is true of the folks that call New Branch home is that you want to share the gospel more. That is, that even while we might construct rationalizations and even while I might come up with excuses and so on, at the end of the day, I believe most of us would love to figure out what it looks like to be more faithful in this regard. Perhaps many of us might be able to relate to the following story from David Platt. He tells of a man named Mark who was involved in church programs, spent his entire adult life involved in church programs and serving on committees. 
You name it, and I did it, Mark said. I was on finance teams and personnel teams. I worked on capital building campaigns and sat in long-term planning sessions. Every week, my schedule was filled with church activity. After becoming a part of our faith family, Mark started hearing people talk about making disciples. That's when he realized that despite all the good things that he had done in the church, he could not name one person outside his family whom he had led to Christ and who was now walking with Christ and leading others to Christ. Mark said to me, David, I've spent my whole life doing all the stuff in church that I thought I was supposed to do, but I'm realizing I missed the most important thing, making disciples. Platt goes on to say, the last thing you and I want to do is waste our lives on religious activity that is devoid of spiritual productivity, being active in the church and yet not advancing the kingdom of God. End quote. Can we acknowledge that possibility this morning? That we too can have calendars full of church stuff it still might be possible to miss the most important thing I believe that while we know we're to make disciples, that while we even love sharing the gospel, there's a disconnect somewhere that prevents us from faithfully going with the gospel message as we should. And perhaps it would even be helpful for me to add this. I believe in a gift of evangelism. I know people that have a gift of evangelism whereby they can start gospel conversations with people and, and even maybe that they're even more effective at having those gospel conversations. Uh, I know even that some of you in this room have that gift, and I know I don't. Okay? I'm not speaking to you from like a place of particularly great gifting in this. Rather, I speak today from this conviction that I can't shake from the scriptures. So, long on-ramp, I know, but I want to offer one central point that mission is a primary, dominant calling on the life of the Christian and therefore must remain a primary, dominant focus in all of our lives. From there, because mission is a primary, dominant calling on our lives, I want to close with four motivations that both fuel and, in, in the end, I want to close with four motivations that both fuel and inform this primary calling to mission. Namely, his glory, his presence, love for others, and obedience. When I speak of mission, I'm speaking, uh, I have in view the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, proclaiming the grace of God. That's what I speak of when I speak of mission. Uh, I'm using the word this morning in the same way that we, what has been called in the past, evangelism, witnessing, outreach, whatever word you want to use for telling other people about Jesus and sharing the gospel. That's what I have in view when I say mission. Genesis chapter 1. The call to make disciples is not an isolated command, but rather is the unfolding of God's great plan, grand plan of redemption to save sinners. And so in the first command that God gives, the first recorded command in history, and I might add a command that we seem to be pretty good at here at New Branch, Genesis 1.28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So from the outset of creation, God's plan on earth was that the earth would be multiplied with image bearers of him and filled with worshipers. That's his plan from the get-go is we're going to multiply little images of God everywhere who are going to worship him. And then, of course, the fall happens. Sin enters the world, and as we're reading, even while we see the future redemption, the hint of future redemption in Genesis chapter 3, we immediately see a shift in the story, right? Like, so, whereas before everything was good, 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 and even very good, now we see in the story, if we're reading through, we see murder and we see brokenness. And by chapter 6, we see that as men multiply, what's being multiplied isn't worship. What's being multiplied is wickedness. Something, as you're reading the story, something is horrifically awry. And so God pronounces judgment through the flood, and he's going to start over through the family of Noah. And, And after this flood, right, God makes a covenant with Noah that he'll never again strike down every living creature. And interesting, in making this covenant, he tells Noah, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And again in verse 7, in you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And yet, If you're reading, it doesn't take very long to see the story that Noah's family, from which the earth will get its new start, remains wicked. And as they repopulate the earth, we see wickedness again on display just a few chapters later in the Tower of Babel. But what's remarkable is that as we look back with the benefit of the full canon of Scripture, we see that after the fall, God is immediately at work unfolding a plan to save a sinful people for himself. And in Genesis chapter 12, we get the next big step of this redemptive plan. As God called Abram and makes a promise to him that I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A promise covenant that would later be restated in chapter 17 where he will tell them that he will he may multiply you greatly and later he will make Abraham exceedingly fruitful and so what we see going on in the story of the Bible is we see that God is promising children to Abraham and that these children will multiply into a nation that will enjoy a unique relationship with God Said differently, God is going to create a people for himself from Abraham. Then, chapter 22, after that event with Isaac, God tells Abraham, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So, What we see 
is that God is going to create a people for himself that enjoy a relationship with God and that through his people, God is going to bless all nations. So fast forwarding a little bit, we, we see throughout the whole Old Testament the unfolding of this promise to create from Abraham a people for himself. Throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, we see how God is going about the work of creating a people for himself, even while simultaneously we continue to see the brokenness of humanity. Then in the book of Exodus, while Israel's down in Egypt, we read that, that it's happening, right? We read that it's happening. But Exodus 1, 7 says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So it's happening, and Exodus tells us of how God saved them from the land of Egypt, and we read further on how God gave his people the law that they might be a set-apart people for himself, and we read how God brought them into the land of Canaan, and so on. We continue about reading about Israel's history all throughout the Old Testament. And what we see is that in the Old Testament is even as Israel is wildly unfaithful, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, is even as Israel is often unfaithful, God remains faithful to his covenant people. And yet, even when his people receive the discipline of the Lord as they do in the exile, God, God's plan continues on unhindered. For example, Jeremiah 23, God promises that he will again gather Israel together, that he will preserve his people, and even promises a righteous branch that will come from the line of David as king. He says, verse 3, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. Or Ezekiel, Ezekiel's talking to mountains. That's weird. Ezekiel does weird things. But he's talking to the mountains of Israel, and he says, I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. Talking about the time when Israel will come back into Canaan. And then, of course, in Ezekiel, the very next prophecy of restoration is a prophecy of a coming day where God will breathe life into dry bones. Israel does return from the exile, and God does gather Israel together again. And then if we fast forward a little bit past the temple, past some prophets, past a few hundred years of silence, John chapter 1 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as, of the, on, as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or as Matthew points out, we see the promised son of Abraham, the promised son of David, and he's arrived on the scene. In the New Testament, Jesus begins his ministry and he chooses his disciples. And even in calling his disciples, he tells them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately after, it says that they, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He tells them in Matthew, he tells them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. 
and his disciples are there with him. They're hearing him teach, and, and they're seeing his life. And he says things like, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he also says things like, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I have other sheep out there who are not in here yet. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And holy sinless Jesus got close enough to sinners that he was reviled as a friend of sinners. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Knowing what would happen, Jesus receives the death penalty that you and I should have received. Jesus was on, crucified on the cross Bearing our sins, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and then he rose again, showing us that he had defeated sin, death, and Satan. And then he speaks these words. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends to heaven. And what happens? Jesus said the disciples would be his witnesses in Jerusalem. So Peter, previously denying Jesus and cowering in fear, is empowered by the Holy Spirit and stands up to a crowd of Jews at Pentecost, boldly proclaiming the gospel of Christ, right? So those who received the word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And we have the Acts 2 passage. It closes with, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so what we see in the book of Acts immediately is that Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses, you'll receive power, and then you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the gospel is on the move. As we're reading through the book of Acts, the gospel is on the move in Jerusalem, so much so that Acts 6-7 describes it this way. And the word of God continued to increase, and number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God increased, disciples multiplied. You could say it was the people of God empowered by the Spirit of God, proclaiming the grace of God, and that through that, God was multiplying a people for himself. Through that, God was recreating, he was making new creations in Christ all throughout Jerusalem, making a people for himself, multiplying more and more worshipers. Continuing on in the story, Stephen rises up in Acts and he boldly explains God's plan of redemption 
way better than I'm doing this morning, from Abraham through Jesus, proclaimants, and they respond by throwing rocks at him until he dies still worshiping Jesus and praying for his murderers. Chapter 8, verse 1 tells us this. Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. At this point, they're only done ministry in Jerusalem, and then a persecution rises up, and they're scattered. But it says, except the apostles. So what happens when the church is scattered, right? Saul gets saved. He starts proclaiming the gospel. The Gentiles start getting saved, and they start getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And then chapter 11, now those that, who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And then in the close of this section of Acts, we see this concluding sentence. Acts chapter 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Again, it's the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, proclaiming the grace of that God. And from that, God was multiplying a people for himself, multiplying more and more worshipers. As the gospel's going out, it's being received, and more and more worshipers are being multiplied. Acts 13 begins the intentional missionary journeys of Paul to the ends of the earth. And for the sake of time, let me cut to the chase and tell you what happened as Paul travels planting churches all over. Verse, chapter 19, verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Then Paul is arrested, beaten, preaches the gospel, has a sham trial, preaches the gospel, escapes a murder attempt, has another sham trial, preaches the gospel, sent to Rome, and the book of Acts closes with this. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul's in prison, and yet because of God's divine providence, he's in prison in Rome preaching the gospel without hindrance and living out his lifelong dream to preach the gospel in Rome. And that's how Acts ends. And then, on down through history, the gospel goes forth, and it increases and multiplies. And then, it goes forth again for another generation, and it increases and multiplies. And that somewhere along the line, it gets to us. And when we receive the word of the gospel, what happened is, is that the Holy Spirit uh, made us new, and it found root in our hearts, and we were created as a new creation that could worship God. And it all happened. God's plan for his church all throughout history has been the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, proclaiming the grace of God. And then the word of God increases and multiplies. We find 
Today, we find ourselves in much the same period of God's plan to redeem the world. What a time to be alive. What a privileged responsibility we've been entrusted with. We get to live in the time after the cross where the Holy Spirit is still active, working through his people, saving people, redeeming a people to himself. We get to live in that time. What a time to be alive. For all the talk you hear about moral decay in our society, and things ain't like they used to be, the Christian has reason for great optimism in this mission. Nations come and go, but Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So as the word of God increases and multiplies disciples in the book of Acts, I don't find any scriptural indication that it won't do the same today if we will be faithful to go with the gospel message. Say all of that, that whole survey, to to make this one point. Mission is a primary dominant calling on the life of the Christian and therefore must remain a primary dominant focus in all of our lives. When we engage in mission, we engage in the unfolding plan of God to redeem a people for himself, for his glory. Likewise, if we shirk this calling, we're not simply looking over a few isolated New Testament passages because it's not a few and they're not isolated. Rather, we're shirking the very role we have to play in God's unfolding plan to redeem a people for himself. Engaging in mission is not to be an ancillary add-on to the Christian life, but should be a primary and dominant focus in all of our lives. So I want to preserve a special place for missionaries that have to do the hard work of crossing cultures and leaving everything they have. But I am convicted to my core that all of us, everybody who names the name of Christ is supposed to have the same resolve, the same care for the gospel going forth as Kevin who will sell everything and move to Boston. Or it's Joe Kelly, who's been living in Slovenia doing hard ministry for 15 or 20 years. Everybody's supposed to care that much. You just get to do it here in Decula. I'll leave you with four motivations that I think are the biblical motivations for mission. These will be quick points that you have questions about, we can discuss, or you can go into them further in your own study. Four motivations for mission. Number one, the glory of God. Our, as Piper is, John Piper is famous for saying, mission exists because worship doesn't. Our primary impetus for going out is that God deserves the worship of every heart. He's not getting it. We need to go with the gospel so that he would get the worship he deserves. Implications of this, if we wrestle with the glory of God, is if we hold his glory, we will rightly prioritize building his kingdom over building our own. I want to read this one passage. This one shakes me. Haggai 1, 2 through 9. 
says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. If we behold his glory, we rightly prioritize building his kingdom over building our own. If we behold his glory, we will recognize that he deserves the worship of every heart. And if we behold his glory, he will make us bold. That will, he will help us to overcome the approval of man, and he will make us bold. Number two, abiding in the presence of God. Each of the great commission passages that I read this morning... Each of those commissioning passages, Matthew through Acts, contain the promise that the Holy Spirit is with us to empower the mission. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age in Matthew. Mark, don't be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Luke, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. John, peace be with you. Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I abide in God's presence, we do not need to fear what we will say. By abide in God's presence, we will care about what he cares about. By abide in God's presence, we will overflow with the gospel. Third, love. If we love people, we will not view them as projects. When I am walking closely with the Lord, I'm just going to be honest with you. I have an agenda for every person I meet. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, I want to see you grow closer to the Lord. So I go into every relationship with an agenda that if I get the opportunity, if we talk long enough, if we get, to, if we get the opening to go there in the conversation, you're going to hear about Jesus. But if we love people, we can share the gospel message in a way that's respectful of them, in a way that treats them as people with stories, with wounds, with all of those things, and we will not view them as projects. If we love people, we will become uncomfortable for their sake. Sometimes I think we want we want non-believers to take on all of the uncomfortableness of coming to our church and, and navigating all of this kind of thing when the reality is we should be the ones to take on the discomfort. We should be the ones to go to them with the gospel. If we love people, we will become uncomfortable for their sake. 
If we love people, we won't be able to hold the gospel in. You won't withhold the gospel from people you love. Fourth, obedience. If we desire to obey, then we will not minimize the Great Commission. We'll not rationalize, minimize, minimize, or otherwise create some out for ourselves. Rather, our heart will be, God, I want to know what you want from me. Whatever it is that you want from me, I don't want to minimize. I want to obey. If we desire to obey, we'll wrestle with the how until we work it out. Like anything else in the Christian life, if we desire to obey, we will be intentional to grow in this area. There's a discussion that happens when you talk about these things. I get it. I feel it. I, it, I get it from my own self. You talk about community. You talk about these things, and it says intentional is forced. When you're intentional to read your Bible, that's a good thing. We don't call that forced. When you're intentional to teach the Bible to your kids or to spend time with your kids, that's a good thing. We don't call that forced. I have a four-month-old, five-year-old, and a seven-year-old. If I'm going to have a date night with my wife, it's going to be intentional. I'm not just coming home on a weeknight saying, Honey, I just love you. Organically, let's just go out on a date, right? Intentionality isn't a problem. Intentionality is resolving to put something into action. Mission is a primary dominant calling on the life of the Christian and therefore must remain a primary dominant focus in all of our lives. As we... We're intentionally light on the how this morning. One, because Ken will get into some of that next week. And two, this is ultimately something you need to work out. Right? I, don't ha- I don't know how to tell you how to move out more on mission. I don't know how to do that. But what I can tell you is that I think that if you do, if you, if you resolve in your heart that you need to do that and you seek to be intentional, then, then God will provide opportunities for you to do that. Uh, one story, and then we're done. A couple years ago, my wife and I start uh, wrestling with this thing of, of mission, and we start really just being under conviction that, like, uh, maybe God put us in our neighborhood so that people around us could hear the gospel. Like, maybe God wants to continue to use us for the gospel, and we're, we're, we really want to meet our neighbors, right? And that's an awkward thing to do when you've lived there for eight years and you don't even know their names, okay? Like, if you first move in the community, it's like, hey, well, I brought you cookies, but you can't, like, live there for eight years and be like, hey, I brought you cookies. What's your name again? I know I've met you five times, okay? Awkward. And so, I'm, as I'm wrestling with this mission stuff, uh, we get a bunch of guys from New Branch together uh, to, to, to talk about it, and we're sitting around a fire pit in my backyard and we're discussing, why don't we evangelize more? How could we evangelize more? And one of us says, hey, we should pray about this. Genius. So we pray. We pray that God would give us relationships with folks who are far from them, and I pray that I could meet my neighbors and then somewhere around 9.30 or so, we wrap up this discussion, a couple of guys go home, and me and Jonathan Malin, who used to be a member here, we're sitting around for a couple hours around my fire pit, just hanging out and chatting. And then around 11.30 p.m., 
this look of concern comes across Jonathan Malin's face because he says, someone's walking up your driveway. So I walk over. My neighbors from right next door to me, who I've lived next to for eight years, have decided to walk over at 11.30 p.m. and say, hey, we heard you were out here doing something. We just thought we should come meet you. I don't know how your neighborhood works. You don't just walk over to someone's house at 11.30 p.m. Fast forward, same, same people, fast forward a few months. We've, we've, had, uh, we've had them over for dinner. We've hung out in the cul-de-sac. Uh, we've watched sports together. That's the intentionality piece. Uh, one day, my wife's going to get the mail, and the woman next door, she comes up to her, and she says, Leah, what's it mean to be saved? That's one you can't miss, right? Like, that's a beach ball on a tee. That's an opportunity that you just can't miss. She says, I was at the hair salon today, and some, she said, some old lady asked me if I'd been saved, and I said, I don't want to talk to you about this. And then she came home. Leah's going to get the mail, and she's like, what does it mean to be saved? Okay, let's talk about that. And so she did, and she got the opportunity to talk with her about it, and she got the opportunity to, 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 open the word of God over a period of time and, and continue to talk with her about it, and, and, and that relationship's still ongoing. I close with this encouragement. Resolve that you will participate in the mission of God to save a people for himself. Ask the Lord, what next, Lord? And he'll give you opportunities. Let me pray.